Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier. As you do those things to that end, I get authors on the show to talk about their writing. I get lots of different people associated with books and publishing and our brains work to talk about those things uh, with a uh, emphasis a uh, accent on creation and writing and the process of making stories and sometimes I talk about my own work as well or I even get listeners to send in their first pages and I give some feedback today um, it's the first episode of season five hooray I'm recording this on January the 10th 20. 22 and I'm doing well I hope you're doing well too that's my that's my update for you on <laughs> Tim Clare's mental health if you've never listened to the show before uh, I talk about my own writing a lot I'm a writer I do non-fiction I do fiction I've published two novels I do poetry as well I've published a collection of poetry and I've performed on stage doing performance poetry with a dash of stand-up for years so kind of cover all bases but I like to get other authors in as well because well look I, I, I've got my own opinions about writing and those are often heavily coloured by how my latest project is going and what my mood's like so I, I'm very conscious that with the best work will in the world and commitment to hard-nosed objectivity I, I'm only one person and human beings are wondrously diverse and the kind of stories and projects we attempt are uh, many and I wouldn't without wishing to sort of overstate my cultural currency and ability to influence you I'm just super conscious that I my way is not the only way and I'd like you to um, congratulations on uh, your uh, book release today right yeah thank you it's uh, it's it's dead it, it, well I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about I, 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 I like, is it, is it an exciting day or is it a bit sort of weird and anticlimactic because nothing's actually visibly changed around you except that the book's yeah, out, I guess, but that's kind of notional, isn't it? Like I'm thinking about that this morning, like to what extent, because, because lots of the, all the kind of big PR stuff, like the stuff that was in the papers, I, I like rate it all in November or whatever. So um yeah so it's kind of i guess it's a strange feeling i think it's i think actually like a lot of things in writing you've got to try and work out how to kind of take your joy and satisfaction where you can so i think it's more almost like it's probably like a personal opportunity so to think look at me i like worked hard and i did it and i've managed to get another book into the world <laughs> you can sort of like see it's like it's like you get to sort of put plant your spade in the in the soil and, and fold your arms and kind of look across the flower beds and they're kind of done and but um you know there's not but it's yeah I guess but I guess it's like that weird moment I don't know if you get this but is it a bit like but also the kind of that game is kind of over like you've you've finished it and it's nice and satisfying but part of you is like well that's not really like that I can't play in that world anymore, whether it's a fiction book or a non-fiction book. I can't tinker with it like it's done. 
I guess I've got to yeah. move on to the next thing. Like, well, I don't. Really, I don't know what is it like for you. Increasingly, I think that actually books I think have a long life outside of the text is probably what I think. So, I've increasingly come to see that there's a lot of work goes into a book before you ever think like before you even think of the book if you like you're living and thinking and what have you and that sort of ends up in there and then afterwards as well even though you've got a stable text then even though you've got you know like the you've got your amount of words in the right order for me it only really starts to live when readers arrive so that bit will be very exciting for me and I'll continue to kind of almost like learn and grow with the book can you can you give a can you can you give me like an example of what that what that's like because that sounds really in I've, I've sort of I, I, I'm not sure I've thought about it like that before, and that's really interesting. Well, I, I mean, I know a lot of authors really don't. A lot of authors really, you know, sort of get cross with people asking questions. But I really love... The, <laughs> <laughs> I really, really love being... You know, I think it's like quite a mysterious process. And in any book, there's a, people, when they've responded to it, have often, like I learn more about myself when people respond to what I've already written. Like, it's like so I'm testing and sometimes reframing or sometimes becoming more sure of what I thought. So so it continues to evolve. So I will definitely, like with this book, which is, um, well, you know, it's about writing. As time goes on, I will change and refine what I think. I mean, one of the things I said near the beginning of the book, something that's really important is I don't, not, I don't have all the answers. I don't think anyone does. But also, it's like I really hope my own understanding is a work in progress. I hope that I change my mind about some of the things I say here in a way. Um, and I don't know whether I, I might violently change my mind. That's probably unlikely. But I'll be refining, I'll be changing, I'll be altering. And some of that will come because of people responding to the book. So I will get a deeper understanding of myself because of what people say and I know um, <laughs> I've said this to writer friends and they think I'm insane but like definitely with my first book people would write to me and kind of suggest I mean well someone wrote to me and suggested a particular type of therapy which I and I took her advice and it changed my life you know because the person reading it I think this is the thing when you hope for brilliant and intelligent readers I think you kind of get them so the person reading the book understood more than I do that some of what I was experiencing was kind of untreated PTSD and that the world has moved on since the last time I'd had therapy and there was a new treatment I could try, which I didn't, it was brilliant. So like that was a really dramatic example. But every time I get asked a question, I, I find it helps me like go deeper on what I've been thinking about or change my mind about what I've been thinking about. It, I mean, it, I guess it makes sense in the sense that we tend to write about stuff that is like important to us right like we we so so it's likely that any reactions that readers have to our work is going to resonate with us at some level because we're invested in it and probably what we wrote about is stuff that we think in the world is important and the emotions we so any kind of reader response is gonna and, and it, I, I sense from what you're saying that also you sort of develop your history you start developing a history with the book because you have people's reactions and you have those kind of interactions with readers and so it start you start to develop a sort of the book has its own I know people sort of sometimes wince at the idea of a book having a life as if it sounds precious but of course it does because it ha it meets readers and does things yeah it, it completely does and then the and then the, the the life that it has depends on other people sometimes i think of it as um a bit like so a book finished book i think of it a bit like a flat balloon i've sort of made it but i'm a reader will then come along and blow some air in it 
And then it will kind of take flight, you know, or not. The reader might grow a bit of air in it and think, actually, this is nonsense. And then that <laughs> balloon won't take flight. But other readers will come and blow air into it. And think, this is amazing. And then suddenly there's a flotilla of balloons and they're going all over the world and having different adventures. So I sort of think of it a bit like that. And actually, I liked your gardening analogy that you said at the beginning, because I been, have been thinking a lot about, again, different books. It's like you're different. It's like the act of writing is the act of gardening and then books are the individual plants. So it's like, you know, I'm this, this book might be, and actually I'm going to, my publication day present to myself is going to be a climbing rose, which I've wanted for ages. Oh, wow. And then, and then I was thinking actually, well, this book is like a climbing rose, but maybe another book would be like, actually, I think I might try and grow some lettuces today, or maybe I'll try this particularly difficult exotic thing that's, hard but and might not work but uh, it will feel satisfying or you know maybe i don't know let's just have a spread of daffodils they'll be cheerful and, and easy <laughs> you know so i think it's that it's a little bit that as well that the i think when you write your first book you become very bound up with that book so again to continue the gardening thing it's a bit like that book almost becomes like ivy wrapped around you and you're the host and that can be a bit tricky but i think the more books you write the more you're able to detach a bit, see yourself, I guess, as the gardener and the books as individual bits of the garden. I hadn't thought that through till now, so I'm very grateful, <laughs> Tim. I like that a lot. <laughs> oh, th- th- thanks. I, I often, like, my favourite answers from people are often ones where um, they get to the end of it and they go, sorry, I don't know, didn't really know where I was going with that. because, And, and it's always invariably a really interesting answer because it wasn't a practiced one and they were working through it and it's kind of always fascinating but often they apologize because <laughs> they're like i'm sorry i didn't give you a, a polished prepackaged answer and i was honest and i'm like well, no that's great can, can i wonder if um yeah i know you you talk about this a bit in in in, in write it all all down but i wonder if we could just touch a little bit on your own relationship to words and writing because on the face of it you know writing an entire book is a preposterous thing for anyone to do what what a, what how, how the, the the sheer cheek that any of us would think of doing it and it's a huge amount of work and i just wonder when was the first time when you sort of started to feel that words or stories or books might be special or interesting or something that you would have a kind of relationship with well, I mean, from day dot, I think. So I don't I don't actually remember kind of like falling in love with stories and books and reading because it actually, I think, all happened really even before I've like got memory. I read really early, so I don't, I don't remember learning to read. It's just something I've always been able to do. I feel, it does feel more like a gift bestowed by a fairy godmother than a skill I had to acquire. Um, the very first stories as well, actually, were... Um, so my dad, who didn't learn to read and write himself until he was, you know, until much later, um, but he was a great singer, he's Irish, and basically just sang me Irish songs. So those are all that. So my first stories were all about um, Irish men, kind of like traveling the world, often being very badly treated by women, quite often complaining about their treatment at the hands of the evil British. Um, and that's, that's that kind of like, that's my first sense of story, I think, came from that and him and adoring him and him always having a story to tell um and then as and then by kind of uh, again i don't remember it i don't ever really remember kind of like not having a book in my hand not wanting to read and not wanting to read 
more and bigger books with longer words and more stories. And my mum, uh, you know, had to get a dispensation for me at the library at school and in the and in the village so that I was allowed to take out non-children's books. I think that was when I was probably like nine or ten. And I just read, you know, I'd read everything. So I was always a massive reader. And I think probably as soon as I knew, almost like as soon as I knew books existed, I wanted to write one. But then then I think, so I think my childhood urge was very was very clear that I wanted to write a book. But then, of course, you get caught up in the flotsam and jetsam of the world and expectations. So and my parents were always very encouraging. But at school, uh, whenever I said I wanted to be a writer, t- teachers in my early, you know, primary school were always very dismissive and, you know, don't be silly. You can't possibly do that. If you work very hard, you might be able to be a teacher or work in a building society. Was the line I remember? Um, so again, wow. my- <laughs> why I wonder sometimes when people have these stories, why why some people went into teaching to just to just crush? I don't know what they. I mean, do you think they thought they were doing you a favour? I don't. I don't see why they were like. Well, I better not say that she can be a writer in case she comes back as an adult and and says you let me down. Like what? What a thing to say. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? And I don't think it was necessarily unkindly meant. I think I had an interesting talk with Tyari Jones about this because we both felt the same way that when you look back on those early those early things where basically people put you down and of course I was very lucky because my parents always gave me a message that I could do whatever I wanted which and again so that probably kept me you know that was a good thing but I think it's that people just trying to manage your expectations so and 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 kind of like accidentally put you down they're just as Terry Jones I quoted her in my book it was something like they're not they're not kind of like they're not saying you're not good enough they're just worried that the world isn't going to support your dreams it's that it's that sort of idea i think um yeah yeah they're, they're, it's a bit like i i wouldn't let my five-year-old daughter drive the car it's not that i don't want her to be an adventurous person it's just that i don't want her to get hurt and i suppose they were seeing you they it seemed as a preposterous thing for you I, to aspire I mean, to I, that I to them so you know like a little comprehensive in yorkshire and now that i've got um got quite a lot of you know nice posh friends now who went to different schools and they went to the sort of schools where you were encouraged to be you know to think of yourself as the leader of the country or to be an entrepreneur or to be a ballet dancer you know that if you had a skill you were encouraged to think that you could earn your living using that skill but I mean I never got a sniff of that growing up the idea that you could that I mean even I mean of course this is the 70s but even the idea of having a job was was still quite a you know, the conversation was like, am I going to work at all? Will my husband let me? Which does seem amazing, doesn't it? But that's, that was sort of what I think it was people, like. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, I think it's, I, I think it's also, you know, in Britain, the kind of class system is the, uh, is the ocean we swim in. And for that reason, it's sometimes invisible to us. And it's just like taken for granted that a bunch of people will just be subtly by all the authority figures around them told them, no, those are rich people's dreams. Don't do that. And yeah. a bunch of other people will be told, do do that. That is your destiny. And if you don't do it, you're kind of uh, spurning your um, birthright. Yeah, exactly. It's not for the likes of us. So that was the, I think that's the vibe. And my dad remembers being told that when he was a boy, like by one of his uncles. And, you know, they were, I mean, they were really poor. And my dad said, he pointed out at the bay, this is in Southern Ireland, and he pointed out at the bay and he said, look at those yachts. He said, I want to have one of those one day. And he was seven or something. And his uncle said to him, you know, oh, that's not for the likes of us. 
So it's that sort of idea, isn't it? There is, so as a child, you're looking around at the world and then people are saying to you, that's not for the likes of us. And that was the vibe I very much got for, for write, from writing. That's not for the likes of us. And of course, the odds are tricky, aren't they? I, I mean, I, when I'm giving advice to people, I always just say to them, don't look at the odds, just completely ignore it. Because lots of times in my life, I've been in a situation where I thought, gosh, all these people wanting to write and they all look a lot nicer and more talented than I am. So what chance have I got, you know? But that, but it's the wrong way to think because then you just, you, again, you just get that that takes you into sort of despair and bitterness and brooding, whereas right. you want to kind of stay in kind of curiosity and excitement and just just sort of do it and see what happens. I have to say, Kathy, like when you talk about sort of writing, you you sound like a kind of. Uh, 1930s kind of like um boys pulp adventure flying ace kind of saying never tell me the odds kind of <laughs> this kind of like idea that it's a kind of wild adventure um, no i love that but that... but it's exciting it makes it exciting you know like... yeah absolutely and don't yeah a bit a bit you know that's exactly it and you don't you don't want to think about the odds you don't want to think about getting snagged on the barbed wire or that you'll probably get eaten by a crocodile up the amazon or whatever you just you just need to go on the adventure <laughs> Can you can you can you so can you tell me how writing then kind of became for the likes of you because you know you 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 were sort of enraptured by you were just naturally reading not because you were thinking well this will this will prove useful when I try and uh, monetize this into a safely pensionable career but because you loved stories and words and then you kind of as you got older you were like oh now I'm mat- becoming realistic I know I shouldn't be doing this and then clearly something went terribly wrong you ignored the the, the your well-meaning teachers um so how did you then pivot back into this um into this uh in, into writing yeah that's a great question and I do think about it a lot because it's very relevant to other people isn't it what the other people do and I had a lot of allies I think along the way so I do think going to university was really significant again because I made friends and my friend sometimes my friend's parents one particular friend called Sophie and her parents just kind of just they just treated me again they basically treated me like I could do anything I like, I wanted. But I mean, my own parents thought I could do anything I wanted, but they didn't know how to do it either. You know, they, they, they also kind of thought, they probably, you know, probably thought that, they probably still didn't really think it was sort of like a, a career, like I should do whatever I wanted, but they didn't really think of it as a career. But again, when I made other people's, when I made other friends, their parents thought that I could do whatever I liked. And that was quite important. Um, and then I, so I would just basically flicker in and out of, well, can I, can't I? And of course, writing is hard and difficult. And I didn't understand at the time that it's hard and difficult for everyone. I thought it was hard and difficult for me because I wasn't good enough. So that was quite a big thing. And then the other massive thing was, well, the massive sort of thing that put me off, but then eventually became the subject of my book was when my, my brother was knocked over and that just knocked over and then a horrible illness and then a horrible death. Um, and so that just took over my life. And when that and first happened, I just completely stopped writing anything. Um, I only read, but I carried on reading. I was sort of reading for reading to stay alive, really, because I needed something to do rather than just think about him all the time. Um, and then when, and then much later, sort of in my late twenties, I got a job in a bookshop because again, everything had gone wrong. I'd 
I'd been traveling the world with my husband, but we split up. I couldn't do anything. I didn't know how to do anything. I was at a really low ebb. And I thought, well, the only thing I know about is books. I'll get a job in a bookshop if I can. Applied to lots of bookshops, heard nothing back, did get a job in a bookshop. And then I started to meet authors because they would come in to sign their books. And then very gradually, I started thinking, they're not different from me, really. They're not, they're not particularly, they, they are just people. You know, they're people with scruffy shoes and, and, they're they're real and I think I had been thinking of them as kind of like godly like people who were different so it was very much that just thinking like oh and then very gradually over the next kind of 10 years I just started thinking more like oh well maybe I could and then I kept trying to write novels because I didn't want to write about what happened to my brother but eventually I just sort of succumbed almost like to the destiny of that and then that became writing about him became my first book, The Last Act of Love, and then, uh, yeah, then I've carried on. I mean, to be honest, it's a complete miracle to me that I've now written loads of books because uh, yeah, it's often seemed very difficult. <laughs> mm. I, I, you, I wonder if you could, because this brings us on to 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 to, to write it all down and it's uh, I'm so glad that we're talking about it because it's just a subject that I've really wanted to get someone on to talk about for ages because it's uh, memoir writing is something that I think is so interesting and yet I don't always know how to speak to it about it to people and what I, what I want to start with is because it, it it's quite a responsibility isn't it because you're you're kind of encouraging people to delve into some feelings and some thoughts and some memories that can often be you know, can seem quite dangerous you know you avoided writing about that for a uh, for the, this one incident for quite a while because it felt I don't know why why do you think I mean maybe this is a very obvious question but why do you think you resisted writing about what happened to your brother well it is it's a question that is at the heart of Memoir writing, really, I guess. So I resisted writing about it because I thought that it would make me too sad. I thought I wasn't good enough to do justice to the story. I worried about how I would represent the real people involved on the page. I definitely thought that nobody would ever read it because it was would be too gloomy and upsetting. So therefore, there was no chance it would ever be published. So that did make me think, well, do I, would I, do I really want to spend all this time doing something that never ends up going anywhere? So it was kind of like a cauldron of those things and the fact that the actual doing of it, trying to do it, did sometimes feel difficult to the point of, you know, that I might just explode or go mad. So it was those things. And what again, I learned to get over all those things. And one of the things I really like to do now is help other people get over those things or sort of slightly learn to work through them. And again, a bit like, back to your 30s adventure it's not that i'm trying to say the barbed wire doesn't exist but it's more like let's just sort of set off anyway and see what happens yeah i i wondered if um you you could talk a bit about um some sort of approaches because you've you you talk about teaching sort of residential courses with people who maybe are looking at writing uh memoir writing something that is non-fiction about their own lives and uh, what what kind of um, things do you encounter in other people when they are uh, 
when when they're sitting down you know you must have you must have spoken to quite a few people now who are trying to do it themselves and um what what kind of things uh, do you do you find uh, that are maybe holding people back or well often it is a feeling of uh, stuckness so uh, often, i think i slightly tend to attract people to me who are well again if they've responded to me it's often because they see some connection so it's often a feeling of stuckness is i often have people that are dealing with something that happened a long time ago so again because of course my brother was knocked over when i was 17 and i finished a book about it when i was 42 so again it's not just a difficult story but a difficult story that was from some time ago so that's often the thing and again that the thing in the past is difficult but also complex with lots of web so i often encounter people who are you know maybe middle-aged but something happened to them when they were you know seven or 17 or 27 and it's dominated their life but they don't they don't almost they just still don't understand it i remember talking about this in prison and this guy said he said yeah he said i've just he said i realize now how can i i how can i get forward if i can't even understand my own story and that that's the thing so i think there's great I think when we don't feel we understand our own story, that can be very tricky. And that's often what people are trying to do. And I think that's what I was trying to do. So, um, and what I, I mean, what I encourage people to do is just kind of start really small because what happens is we have this, the urge to do it and then get kind of uh, immediately dammed up by all these big questions. And it's not that the big questions that wouldn't need an answer eventually if you wanted to, you know, publish a whole book on the subject. But it's normally that they just they stop you doing anything at all. So the trick of it is just to start really small and then sort of they, then you kind of do answer them as you go along if they need to be answered. Some of them become less relevant. But the trick of it is to not be put off, basically, by the fact that you don't have the answers. And I think that's, I think that's poorly understood in our culture i think the way we talk about writing in our culture is that if you are a talented person an anointed person you'll just know what you're doing and you will sit down and then you will just write down what you know and then you'll put a full stop at the end and then you'll have your book whereas in my experience it's just not a linear process like that at all so although a finished book is always a linear process isn't it even like a really experimental novel it's still a linear process you the reader usually read it from the you start the first page you finish the end page for the writer i think often it's not that that it's not almost not helpful it's easier to see it as a manuscript or as a jigsaw or as a garden or you know something a bit more multi-dimensional um that's the way i think of it now i i think i think because like you say you had this i i think the the same that you said about writers coming into the bookshop and you realize that they were real people i think the same thing happens that we consume most of the books we consume books as solely finished articles and they're almost like kind of artifacts that have been dug up and not things that were slowly kind of concocted by a human and and then you start writing your own and it is, it's nothing like a published book. It's just some bits. And you go, oh, this doesn't look. And you compare it to the, all the books you've read. And it, it just seems nothing like them. And you conclude that you, you're broken exactly. or you're worthless or yeah. it's a bad idea. Because you've got no point of comparison because you didn't see have access to any of the process behind those yeah. books. And the only thing we've seen is like a movie with like some guy with his shirt sleeves rolled up and a cigarette in the corner of his mouth typing furiously away on a typewriter because that makes good tape but it's not how most of us 
<laughs> I mean, I, I could probably pass an evening doing that, but I would be pretending I'd have to be having a good time. <laughs> I'm sure tapping away. But um, I, I wonder, like the first, I guess the first thing that anyone who's got something to write about, whether it's particularly painful or not, but especially with something that might be in the realm of trauma is like, I, I know, I know what happened. I was there. What possible good could come from me writing it down? Do you know what I mean? And I wonder what you sort of what your thoughts are about that because you've done gone through this process. I do, but in my experience, people don't really present to me like that. I don't think I've ever had anyone say to me, "I know what happened. I was there. What good could come of writing it down?" What they're much more likely to say is, "I should know what happened. I was there." but I still don't understand it. I still don't begin to understand it. And it's inside me and it's eating away at me and I don't want to know what to do. And I've had therapy and that made things a bit better, but I still feel I'm carrying this thing around like a brick inside me and I don't know what to do about it. But I have this urge to write about it, should I? So that's much more the sort of thing that I think... I mean, I would never, and if, I would never encourage someone to write it down if they didn't want to. I think that's the thing. I wouldn't ever... Um, it's all to do with this what you do with the urge I think that if you've got the instinct to do it then it's how you how you stop stopping yourself it's probably what I'm interested in but I'm not interested in you know if someone if someone had some awful tragedy when they're a kid but now they have a really enjoyable life and they, I don't want them to like I don't know stop playing football or you know stop going to the gym because I want them to write about the sad thing that happened to them when they were 10 that's not my bag at all um it's solely if the person themselves remain trapped in a story remain and actually i think then when you do jump into what makes a good memoir i never like a memoir i don't i don't think memoirs really work if you can kind of slightly tell that the author isn't isn't i think the best memoirs are where the author is genuinely animated by trapped in this material struggling with these events and are using the page to try to make sense of it and occasionally I read a memoir, usually one that's written by an author, someone that's already written a few novels or whatever, and then they're now, you know, they're turning their hand to memoir. And yes, they can string a sentence together, but you sort of have the sense that they don't care enough. It's, there's, not, there's no, oh, I don't know, there's no emotional weight behind it somehow. Whereas, I, so I think it's very much that, it's that and I think it's, it's explaining to people or helping people see that they think that the fact that they're confused about the story means they can't tell the story. Whereas I actually think being confused about the story is almost essential to get a, to get a decent piece of writing out of it. I have hopped from what you should do to yourself. No, no, that's you no, that's about with published books there. But um, because, because I also just think that you should write it for yourself and not care about getting published. But it's but I think it's like the centrality of the importance of being able to tolerate the confusion. So I think loads of people, including me in the past, tend to think I'm confused about this. So therefore, this is not for me. Whereas I think it's, I just would say like more, yes, you're confused about this. I think if writers have one quality, it's a sense of puzzling at the world and finding it difficult to work it out. Um, and then it's that confusion that you want to explore on the page rather than thinking I have to wait until I'm not confused anymore. And when I'm not confused, I will then be able to make a record of this. Does that make sense? Well, I was just going to ask, I wonder if you could expand on why, why you think confusion leads to what you sort of described as kind of like gripping or engaging uh, writing whether it's memoir or whether I guess it can happen in fiction as well what do you what do you think's going on there that 
create something that feels more like a living uh, book rather than a sort of uh, dusty, hide-bound uh, piece of public record? Well, I think it's probably because we're puzzling stuff out, isn't it? As you said earlier on, we tend to write about what we're interested in. And I would say we tend to write about what we're preoccupied with. And we're preoccupied with it for a reason, sometimes a reason we don't necessarily understand. And I think there used to be some idea, who knows where this came from, where there was something a bit vulgar about writing about stuff that you're interested in. Or if you had skin in the game, <laughs> you know, like that, that sort of like, you know, this book, is, this book is brilliant. This book is, you know, 800 words of close analysis about this. And this wonderful author has no emotional connection to it. So they're not muddled <laughs> by what they think personally. You know, that sort of idea, objectivity rules. Whereas I kind of think, I'm sure in lots of cases, objectivity is very good. But in terms of creative narrative, I think probably what I'm usually interested in is, is the relationship of the writer with their subject. I'm never really very interested in reading, I don't read ghostwritten stuff. And it's not because I morally disapprove of ghostwriting at all. I can see that it's a very good idea if someone's had an interesting experience, they'd have a writer to help them. But it more helped me see I'm not interested in reading it because if it's been ghostwritten, then the, the writer helper is the person that's done the, that's dealt with the confusion, that's dealt with the struggle. Whereas what I like reading is I like reading, I like seeing how the writer has struggled, has come to terms with the story, what they're choosing to present at the story, and that's the bit that's that that I'm fascinated with less so than the actual mechanics of you know, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened. It's how the person is now fitting it into their worldview and how they're using writing to um to make sense of it um rather than just you know i mean because we wouldn't write about stuff we didn't care about would we like if we didn't if we're not in or if you all of a sudden you completely understand something i think i'm not sure how interesting it is i guess that we have heard that kind of the the kind of old saw write what you know and sometimes that can feel like an injunction against writing what you don't feel completely authoritative in and an expert in um and i think that's sometimes the i think it's that and i, I wonder if it's also sometimes the fear of if you're really interested or absorbed or obsessed by something the fear of uh, this terror that you're going to other people will be bored by it, that no one could possibly be interested in it in the way that you are. And this fear that we're going to write about ourselves and someone's going to say, you're self-absorbed, you're, you know, no one cares. I, I think that's like one of the voices that a lot of us get in our heads when we sit down to write something and often never more so. And again, it comes back to some of this stuff you said about being socialised into being told your life is not the kind of life that people write books about, um, where we're scared because we we think, what if I write this down and it's and, and and people are like why on earth would you waste your t my my time with this yeah absolutely it's a complete fear of being of being ourselves in front of people and then thinking that we need to sort of self protect away from that um i mean there's I mean, nice, my experience um, i was sorry go on, go on well yeah i often think of that thing and again because it Obviously, we talked about that that's not for likes of us stuff, which is a class thing. But then I've also always been interested in, I think it was um, 
Diana Mitford, who, you know, society beauty. And her, I think that her nanny said to her about, she was like trying on her wedding dress or something. And her nanny said to her, well, nobody will be looking at you. What makes you think anyone will be interested in you? <laughs> and of course they were on her wedding day because she was <laughs> society beauty. But again, they'd been brought up in that sense of like not, you know, don't don't make don't think that you can be interesting to other people. Don't think anyone, you know, who who's going to care about you. It's that sort of idea, um, which again, I think you so and and it stops a lot of people from doing stuff. The idea that they're being, you know, that it's just the worst thing in the world to ask for attention or to um, ask for people to spend time consuming your, you know, consuming what you think. And I think memoirists again. Lots of published memoirists continue to just really struggle with this because it does feel, and it, I've probably got over it a bit lately with the excellent therapy finally paying off, but it does feel, um, it does often feel like an insane act of, you know, standing on a box and showing you my wounds. You know, I, I remember being in the National Gallery, I think, um, probably after my first book had come out and I was looking at that, I'm not very good at art, so I'm not going to know who the painting is. But it was a painting of St. Sebastian, who is covered in arrows, basically. <laughs> and I was just sort of standing in front of it, looking at this painting of this man with loads of arrows sticking out of himself. And I did think, like, oh, I wonder to what extent a memoir is just kind of standing up and showing your wounds to the world. And that did make me feel itchy and miserable and insecure and upset. Um Whereas actually, I think certainly what I've put into the world has usually been, I don't know, it's, it's good. It's, it, yeah, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think as the writer, you, do, you can often get snagged on the insecurities of um, a feeling that there's something wrong about it, feeling that it's just attention-seeking. Well, I, I think also maybe our modern society is would be more like Saint Sebastian, full of arrows, thinking, "Should I phone in sick to work this morning? Are they think <laughs> I'm going to be lazy?" We're kind of taught to hide our wounds and that to admit that they exist is sort of placing a burden on other people and is a little bit gauche. You know, it's just kind of like it's kind of brings the mood down, and uh, and, and and it's an imposition. And I think that's sometimes why sort of admitting these things in memoir or just in any context can feel radical because we're we're so conditioned and not everyone equally of course across society conditioned to not make a fuss yeah. and that different types of pain are more or less legitimate and um and even with sort of like people who we imagine are literally wounded like war heroes um that's kind of sanctified and there'll be like one day where it's mentioned but then for the rest of the time, that's kind of hidden and put aside and there's different types of wounds that aren't allowed to be showed. So I think that itchiness is something maybe that's been sort of socialised into us rather than something that's inherently bad, you know? Yeah, I think so. And I was, I was writing something recently about how, and I was saying about how, you know, after my brother's accident, we owned this pub in Yorkshire and I was working behind the bar and I wrote down the line, I wrote, I learned to put a brave face on it behind the bar. And then when I was editing, I looked at it and I thought, is that a bit of a cliché? And I looked at it again. You know, sometimes with cliches, you you look at them and you when you look at them closely, I often think I look at some I've you know struck something through because it's a bit cliched. Then I look at it and I think that's brilliant. How did anyone ever come up with something that good? Hmm. Now we all use it so easy. 
And I thought, putting a brave face on it. Yeah, that was basically exactly what I used to do. I used to plaster a bra- in my in my walk down the stairs, so like upstairs at the pub, the private space. By the time I got to the bottom of the stairs, I had plastered a brave face onto my kind of terrible, agonised grieving. Because again, I knew that I had to, you know, nobody wants to be served pints by someone who's crying into the drip trays, you know. So... I, le- I, th- I think I left the line and I thought that that's it really and that's what we do as people we've you're absolutely right we've been socialized into not showing pain so we put a brave face on it but then sooner or later it kind of does burst out I think that's the thing with repressing stuff and then I think that you get caught in this then you get caught in this thing of what am I doing what am I doing with all this pain and how do I how do I be- try to process it and then I think the page can be a good place for that sort of slightly irrespective of whether or not you share it and then if you do share it then again there's an ongoing relationship with the fact that you've shared it I remember quite soon after my first book came out uh which again despite me thinking this is so gloomy no one will want to read it loads of people wanted to read it and they don't find it gloomy but they do find it sad because it is really sad so lots of people on twitter were saying you know things like you know I've been up all night crying over this book And I met this person I know who is a critic and she said to me, oh, she said, don't you think it's just terribly vulgar? She had this awful disapproving um, expression. She said, don't you think it's terribly vulgar that all these people are crying about your book on Twitter? Doesn't it worry that it will make people not take you seriously? And I tell you, I thought at the time, I felt like I'd been stabbed in the gut. And I was, again, I put a brave face on it. I did, I said to her, well, not until now I didn't. And I just carried on talking to her all the time, feeling like I'd just, you know, like I'd been physically assaulted by this accusation of vulgarity. And then it kind of stuck with me, this horrible feeling. And it was basically, it was about two years later, I said to another friend, I said that conversation, and he just said to me, he's very wise. I'll tell you who that, I won't tell you who the first person was, but the wise person was Max Porter. And he just looked oh, at me okay. and he said, he said, that sounds like a horrible thing to have been carrying around with you. And when he said that, it was like he took out the knife with which she'd stabbed me in the gut. And I was able well, to, to process that a bit. But I still think What a snobby that. thing to say. Don't it's you think that it, don't you think said. people admitting their emotions are common? That pretty what much a is thing what he to said. say. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> and again, and I realise now when I look back on that, and I remember once actually doing an doing an event. Um, and I like I enjoy events. I enjoy talking to people. But again, every so often you get again, it's some little barb. You get an arrow in. Not that there was an arrow, but someone from the audience asked a kind of slightly the same question, but in a nicer way, um, just about revealing stuff about yourself. I think they maybe asked me about you know the fact that I'm half Irish and half English. And again, I'd never thought about it before. But on stage, I said. Um, because, you know, because in my family, my Irish dad is, you know, he's the emotional one. He's very quick to laughter, very quick to tears. And I'm like that. Whereas my mum's much more sort of like your typical idea of the, the Anglo-Saxon, a bit more of a stiff upper lip. And I said, I said, well, sometimes I think the Irish half of me has written this book and the English half of me is ashamed of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, and then, as, again, as time goes on, in that way I said about how I have a long relationship with books, you have a text and then you have a relationship with the books. And then every so often I have felt like I'm standing here with my, my wounds dripping, but I don't feel like that anymore. I've kind of, again, processed that. And I now feel quite... 
um, kind of stable, with more of an understanding of my practice, which is that what I do, and I didn't understand this before, but I understand this now, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the world and I'm offering myself as a point of reflection and reference. And that's it. That's all I'm doing. I'm never being definitive. I'm never being exhaustive. I'm never saying this is the way things have to be. I'm just looking at the world and offering what I think of it. And then the reader does what they will with it. And that feels really, really kind of, um, I don't know, calming, relaxing to understand that. Possible, because sometimes I do find writing so hard, I question why I'm doing it. But now it just feels that I know what I'm doing and that feels like a healthy way in which to proceed. Kathy, I wanted to ask ask you about something you said just earlier where you talked about people being stuck in a story, people coming to you, and I sensed that this had maybe been something you'd been through yourself, and they had this urge to kind of get something down, and but that some way they had this story, this experience, and they were stuck in the story of it. Um, what does it mean to be stuck in a story? Well, so I think something happens and then you kind of do your best to survive it in the moment. And then often either you put your own brave face on or other people say, we're not going to tell anyone about this. I remember working with this wonderful woman um, who, and and that had been her experience. Um, She'd had a horrible experience. And then her father had said to her, we must tell no one about this. Um, And then at that point, like the shutters came down and, the, what had damaged her was obviously what had happened to her at the hands of a strange man. But then it was her father saying, we must tell no one about this. And she got stuck in the story, got stuck in, you know. And I, for a lot of people, it's it's like that. And obviously, if um, and shame then, I think, gets into it. So there's often a lot of, and I found really with my first book, you know, when people started reading it and writing to me, which I love. I love hearing from people. And sometimes people wrote to me because they they too had experienced a sibling bereavement or they wrote to me because they too had experienced a long death. But more often, it was just that they too had were stuck in a story. They too experienced a lot of shame and guilt around something. And so that's kind of what happens. And it's that thing I said earlier on about the ivy, I think, wrapping it around yourself. So you're the person, but this thing that happens has all these tendrils and you keep trying to kind of hack it away, but they keep growing back. And I, and I think that when it happens, it's not really anything to do with any objective measure of sort of how severe the thing is. It's more to do with what kind of person you are and probably a little bit to do with what sort of support you were offered at the time. Um and to do with the way you think about the world. And so then it can just continue being something where, you know, again, it feels like a merry-go-round. You can't get off. just feels like a, you just keep slightly ending up in the same place. Um, and that's what, I mean, that's how I finished my first book in the end, because I kept starting giving up, starting giving up, starting giving up. And I eventually realised that, the only way to liberate myself was to finish it. Because if I didn't, every time I gave up, I didn't give up for very long. I wasn't able to stop. It wasn't a choice of like, shall I write this or shall I have a really enjoyable life? <laughs> I'm sure if that choice had been on offer, I would have taken the really enjoyable life. But it was exercising this kind of like doom-laden fascination for me. 
And the only way to get off that merry-go-round, I'm vastly mixing my metaphors now, was to was actually to, to continue it and to tame it. And then I did feel a great sense of satisfaction. And people do feel a great sense of satisfaction when they start kind of taming the confusion they feel, even seeing it, even having an understanding of the different constituents of, that are making up this story. Because it's never usually, you know, it's not usually simple. It's not like A happened and because of that, then I felt this and because of that. that you know, again, it's not often linear. There's often lots of strands to it. Do you think that there's there are uh, I, because of course just doing that I wonder what I guess what I'm trying to say is when we repeat a story over and over to ourselves that's you know commonly known as like rumination and it's a big predictor of depression when someone keeps repeating to these do you think there are um helpful or i suppose um i don't i'm trying to avoid the word healthy but i suppose productive ways of retelling our stories to ourselves uh or more productive versus less productive ways like when someone sits down to write about something that's happened to them how do you 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 said you sort of try and get them to start with something small and i wondered it, it how do you get someone to begin approaching that because you know obviously people have been kind of in a in a sense revisiting the story over and over and you did that so what's what's the difference when you actually are getting it down almost kind of like unburdening yourself of it well i mean i think it's just almost like starting with one line at a time so often what stops people is this sense of you know like how could i create a complete narrative um whereas you just need to stop worrying about creating a complete narrative i'm just, just start with like one memory or something i quite often get people just to use the writing prompt i remember the time when and not th think too much about what that is just pick one little aspect but what i think is very again i don't know whether the word is healthy productive or whatever but what i do do now because i didn't do it at the time because my i was always keeping diaries when my brother was knocked over i just didn't have any words i didn't write anything for ages but what I've trained and schooled myself to do more recently is I write everything down kind of as it happens. So I just have a daily, you know, I write most days. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Not not with any sense of sharing it with anyone. That's really important, just for me. But I write it all down because I realise that that's what, if I could go back to my previous self at any point during all the difficult stuff, and, you know, kind of slightly during the nice stuff as well, but who cares about the nice stuff? As in, it's just you enjoy living the nice stuff. You're not, you don't need to write it down because you're just having a nice time. So it does tend to be the harder stuff. And if I could give one piece of advice to myself at any of those times, it would be write it all down, write it all down, write it all down. Um so now that's what I do. And over the past couple of years, where, again, like everyone over the past couple of years, I've had some pretty hefty stuff happen. And I have, at all points, managed to write it down. Not in beautiful prose, not in whatever, but I've just managed to get it down. Because I know now that it's good for me to get it down. And I also know that there will come a time in the future when I will both have sort of forgotten. And I will be a bit interested in the the details, you know, that I'll... I'll kind of want to know, but I do, I find that very helpful, um, very helpful for me. And it's very interesting. I don't understand this at all, Tim. Um, but sometimes I also make little voice memos to myself 
usually like if I'm going from place, this isn't necessarily on hard things. This is just because I want to capture something and I'm going from place to place and it's just a bit easier to speak into my voice memo. But I never feel I've written it down until I've transcribed it. So if I've just said it, then it, I don't have the, somehow the therapeutic benefit of the writing it down. The sense of ease and comfort comes when I've transcribed it. So I find that really interesting. And I think there's something, because obviously it's great to kind of talk to friends and stuff, but there's still, or, or, you know, talk to a therapist, but there is still something I think amazing about just writing stuff down just for yourself in a private place. Um, yeah, I, I wonder whether we. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know, but I wonder whether there's some like level of levels of processing we have to be able to do to kind of get something on the page, and it might just be. I don't know. Maybe I, I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. It might just be sort of like the sense of making a, a record, and I don't know. Or, or maybe it's the associations. Maybe it's something that builds up over time. You know, you you write stuff down, and it, it becomes associated with that process of letting go and yeah now I might be kind of almost slipping into it uh again I'm outside of my comfort zone of you know not being a therapist etc but slipping into some kind of decent a good state like a good mental state because it's a bit to do with probably with making the right choice like so in the past something bad happened and I used to get drunk whereas I no longer drink alcohol something bad happens I do my duty in the moment as much as I can I do what I can to help or whatever it is um and then later on i make an active choice not to get drunk not to run away from the pain but to meet myself on the page and write about it so again i hadn't worked out that before so maybe that's part of it and the other thing i do and again i'm i kind of almost slightly haven't realized it i do i do um my therapist has taught me this breathing so i do when i sit down to write about something especially difficult but i try to do it most of the time is i do do this sort of grounding breathing so maybe that also helps to kind of calm me down and calm the panic. And then that probably adds to the whole experience being a helpful one rather than a, um, well, yeah, just, I mean, just helpful. I think that's the thing, just helpful. Um, another friend of mine says this thing I like, which she says that when times are difficult, you can just say to yourself, like, yeah, it's surfing the big waves. <laughs> <laughs> I find that quite helpful. I think, like, yeah, I surfed the big waves today. Um, I, I, I wonder. I wonder. You, you talk about. Um, I, I just want to um, circle back to when you were talking about teaching, sort of uh, creative writing, teaching memoir at a, um, at a retreat. When I've done that, uh, I've been sort of. I, I, I've. I, I don't want to sort of over. I don't, don't, don't want to sort of uh, exaggerate or anything, but they've been really profound experiences to me because I think it's sometimes brought home how much invisible suffering so many people are carrying around that even they are sort of dismissive of, that they kind of go, oh, well, it's just a thing that happened. And then they say it to you and you go, oh, my gosh, that sounds like a horrendous thing to have gone through. And then it's like they realise it themselves and I wonder if um, when you've taught adults in your various settings in prisons and in on retreats and things like that, um, whether it's sort of changed and when you've had people write to you, whether it's changed your sort of sense of 
what the world's like and whether you see any changes in people who having sort of disclosed these things in writing whether you see any changes in them over the week sort of as that process begins yeah i think there is an unburdening and i think there is something just to be seen by another human in your pain when you're used to covering it up and you're used to being possibly made to feel ashamed for something um so I think that's a, that is an astonishing, and it's a it's a gift. You know, you don't have to teach writing to do it. It's a gift we can all give each other just by listening and not. Again, you don't have to jump in. You don't have to try to fix. You just have to kind of just be there. And it is a, it is an astonishing thing. I think you're completely right. We tend to we just tend to hugely minimise our own experiences um, to the point where, um, again, obviously, once I'd written my first book about my brother's long death and the manner of his death which is sort of quite unusual and and people would say to me sometimes again in a sort of slightly clumsy way like something along the lines of well it's all right for you you had this interesting story to tell yeah bereavement privilege yeah but of course the, the the, the, the sort of the interesting thing about that is I never thought of it as an interesting, you know, I only thought of it as an awful millstone burden, something I was stuck with. It never, I, just, I didn't see it as interesting because I was doing that thing of minimising the events of my own life. I solely saw it as something terrible from which I had been too fragile and pathetic to to move on from, you know. And I, and, I, and, I, and this often happens to me with people I teach. They, they, they'll, they'll sort of like shuffle in and say, well, of course, no, no, nothing interesting's ever happened to me. And I'm just, you know, I'm ridiculously, you know, this, this, this. And as they talk, they'll often unfold some sort of you know, amazing story, something that's an amazing story. But they don't see it like that. I mean, and again, I think all stories are amazing. So because for me, it's very much the... Again, the story isn't the objective story isn't the point. It's the relationship that the person has with the story. So I think that's the and that's why everything is unique, because it's not it's not what's happened. It's the it's who you are as a person. You've done a different thing with that experience than someone else would have done. And that's what I'm interested in, the kind of like the endless variety of human beings. Um, I don't want us all to be the same. I love the way that something could happen to you and you'd experience it in a different way than I would and in a different way than someone around the corner. You know, it's that, I think. That's where the sort of the joy and the excitement and the creativity is. But, and, and, but, but people don't often, you know, usually don't really sort of see that at all. They, most people, and, and this is what I was like as well, are all completely obsessed with the fact that they don't think their grammar is going to be good enough. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I do see the world in a different way. I, I mean, there's something interesting that because people write to me a lot, I do realise sometimes I get a bit risk, you know, I become very aware of the world as a dangerous place because a lot of people write to me about, like, difficult things happening. So I've had to be careful with that. And that's, you know, that's why I needed some extra therapy because I've become very anxious, basically about everything. Um, and, yeah, and I also find that the you know, the more I work with people on telling a different story in a funny kind of way, the less I want to read, you know, my own reading then becomes quite light because, yeah, you know, and I remember um, Julia Samuel, who's a therapist, who's also a brilliant writer. I've done a few events with her. I love her. But she said to me, you know, because she's a grief therapist, and she said that she very much um, 
you know, when she's not working, she, her, her sort of cultural diet is extremely light and frothy. And I thought, actually, yes, that would sort of, that would serve me as well. So I no longer feel, you know, I used to get a bit cross with myself. Though. I would sort of, you know, fit, you know, maybe I'd been in a prison or whatever, and then I'd be trying to read some very long, heavy, difficult book. And then I thought, actually, it's, it's all right. If I am, if I am kind of, you know, being present with people who have suffered, then it is kind of something like, you know, it, it's, it's okay for me just to reread Georgette Hare in the bath. That's allowed. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I know exactly uh, what you mean. And there's like a, a fellow sort of anxiety sufferer as well. I remember being on the train once and I was simultaneously, I was sitting at a table and I was reading Sylvia Plath's diaries but I also had my Game Boy out and I was playing Pokemon <laughs> and someone sat down opposite me and then looked at the two things and then just got up and walked away and I think they just thought oh this person is <laughs> this person is not very well but I, I, I like sort of I, I, I think the two things sort of I just dip into a few entries about <laughs> Ted Hughes being sort of just being a shit and then I'd go and 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 walk cycle around a lovely kind of countryside with wind farms and with pikachu and then dip back in and i think the two things sort of complemented each other very well but that's just how my brain works and i was ashamed about that for years i was like i'm a grown man why do i like these things that are not intrinsically you know deathless culture and i think it's you know like you say it's it's okay to seek pleasure and seek some relief and self-regulate through whatever means that aren't drinking heavily which was something I also used to do well um, yes basically I think that's that's the thing we can have excessively high standards of ourselves and I must tell you Tim I'm so glad you told me that because my husband and son are both big Pokemon players and they don't have a lot of cross crossover between my literary life <laughs> Yeah. and our home life so you I, I just can't wait to tell my son when he gets home from school that one of the things I did today whilst being interviewed was have a Pokemon chat with someone he'll be very <laughs> yeah well I, I think like I, I think people get a shot I think it maybe it comes up in the sort of things when you're talking about people's memoirs and um people in prisons and people just Im they imagine oh my stuff is not the stuff that appears in books and it, it turns out that that can often is precisely why it connects with people because they think I haven't come across this before and it, you know I when I went and taught in China and taught in a migrant school for the children of migrant workers and they'd set me this lesson I had to do and I ended up giving up very quickly and saying should we just make up some Pokemon and I was through a translator and all the kids were like yeah and we did it and suddenly we had this point of connection with children I didn't have a shared language with because my mandarin was appalling but like um i i think and these things can be you know they can be like the the songs that your dad sung you when you were little like people might not have heard the same songs but people from cultures all over the world can relate to a parent singing them songs that go back to the kind of old country or whatever like that is something that in its specificity has a universality to it and i i, I wonder if that's the kind of thing that we often those are the things that we often sort of hold back they're the things that we often want to keep out are the things that most connect with readers yes i completely agree and that not everything about i don't know literature if you like has to be literature with a capital l that's probably really important 
Have there been any sort of examples of memoir or non-fiction by writers that you've books that you've read and gone oh like because you said how you like books where you feel like someone it's almost like a someone's puzzling with something or confused and wrestling with a a question that they don't quite have a handle on at least at first I'm wondering if there's been books that you've read that really where you felt like you were immersed in a kind of detective story or someone's attempts to get emotionally to the bottom of something yeah I, and I think folding that in I mean I think that the point with the, the finished book shouldn't feel like it's written by a confused person if you see what I mean that that the, the, again I feel I also feel uncomfortable if I feel a writer hasn't almost sufficiently understood or made peace with the story like by the end of the process um but uh, so, for example, The Cutout Girl by Bart Van Ness. I think that's a really good example of how you build an investigation into the narrative itself. Um, so I like that sort of thing. And I like, again, if the, for a certain type of writer, I think puzzling on the page is almost like the best thing they do. I really like Musa Okonga's work. And I really liked both um, his recent memoir, One of Them, but also... His book, which I'm never actually sure whether it's memoir, novel, autofiction, what it is, but um, it's called In the End, It Was All About Love, and it's about Berlin. But again, there's a lot of puzzling on the page in that, and I really enjoyed it. There's, there's, there, yeah, there's, lo- there's lots of um, things that clearly could not have happened in uh, reality, but like, and then some bits that are just him kind of sitting, being kind of vulnerable and lonely. and Yeah, and I like the you know the vulnerability i think in the the work again he's i i feel he's doing that whether he would say it like this or not but he's doing that thing or what i take from him as a reader is i feel he's offering himself as a point of reflection and reference um and just showing us him puzzling out puzzling stuff out and i think that can be you know that can be really compelling i think sometimes when i feel uneasy it's often because sometimes when someone writes a book like because they can as in they the story is sufficiently stand out or maybe you know there are you know sort of almost like someone came to them saying why don't you write about this and you can see that they haven't really quite reconciled with the nature of writing about themselves so again that can make me feel just often like a little bit worried about them sometimes um i don't always and for all that i am as you say a great encourager of people to write in that in that sort of adventurous style i don't actually necessarily always think people should do it and have been known to say to people um i'm not sure but i mean mostly i think people should you know but you know modestly and with the aim to communicate with themselves but there are times when I think I'm not sure it is the right thing and I think that um apart from anything else it takes a long time and it's difficult so sometimes when I think something terrible has happened in a family and somebody wants to immediately write about it I do sometimes think well maybe you should sort of steady off and give your attention to kind of like making sure everyone's okay um not they necessarily have to be exclusive aims but um but again I struggle with all this stuff myself in terms of the I try really hard to be a decent human being first rather than a kind of a greedy writer um (laughs) I don't want to you know I don't want to be that writer where something terrible happens and you immediately see how you can become a content mine about it that you know I think quite hard 
so I so, so I do write it all down for myself because I think it's a helpful thing. But I slightly try to stop myself, almost like seeing um, seeing instant, <laughs> seeing instant, <laughs> making too quick a leap from tragedy to book deal. <laughs> well, there's that amazing Raymond Carver um, poem called uh, I think it's called "So Your Dog Died," and it's just about like the dog dying and the and the and the poet of the piece sort of thinking fantastic like <laughs> i'm gonna get such good art out of this um and 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 I, I i yeah and i think also that can as a writer that can sometimes be like a weird distancing thing to try and spare yourself pain i certainly have had that where <laughs> where where you if i cheapen it it doesn't hurt so much if i kind of go well at least i'll get something out of this break this heartbreak uh it's kind of me trying to dehumanize myself slightly um so i can forget that i'm the person it's happening to because <laughs> and of course it, and because you can't you can only sort of delay it so i i think i think sometimes i've tried to sort of like semi ironically do that and go well maybe one day i'll 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 be able to monetize this and uh, you know it's never never quite that easy yeah but i think it is that isn't it and it's like the you know the nora Ephron thing every everything is copy which i think her mother said to her from the deathbed and then um, so it is that idea, and I agree with you. Sometimes it's sort of a, sometimes it's just a joke you reach for in the dark time, isn't it? I was in my novel. In fact, in my novel, I didn't. I don't think it went in in the end. But I have a male writer in my novel called Liam, who spends quite a lot of time agonising about writing matters, and um, he he really likes that Raymond Carver poem. <laughs> Has it stuck up on his wall? I don't think that made the final. Um, that that made the final edit. But he, um, but yes, he worries about all that sort of stuff. And then his wife just wishes he'd just, you know, just work, worry less, and spend more time, mm-hmm. you know, like playing with their child or you know, li- living an actual life rather than sort of endlessly puzzling and worrying about how he's supposed to be in the world and precisely what he's supposed to be able to. Um, what he's supposed to be able to make of it. But again, also in that novel, there's a lot of kind of like couples arguing over the dishwasher and stuff. And I often say, uh, yeah, so I often, if I have some sort of argument with my husband or he does something I don't like, and then I say, oh, don't worry, I'll just stick it in the next novel. So I'll benefit ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, it'll be okay. I'll get some content from it somewhere. So it's the same sort of thing, really. Um, but yes, I think it's a very, it's an interesting, um, I think it's an interesting thing about to try to remember that you are, uh, but I think actually and everyone experiences this now in a way, not just writers. I think anyone with social media, in fact, sometimes people, I think more, because anyone with an Instagram account, I think often gets a bit depressed if they're spending, if they realise that they're uniquely doing things to have postable content. Um and certainly for me, though, I'm always aware I'm just old, you know, that young people will, if you, you know, grew up with it, it's probably a different thing. But I need to make sure I'm living a substantial part of my life offline and a substantial part of my life, you know, not that I'm immediately turning into something that's going to be read, read by other people, which probably is why I like this intermediary thing of the of the... I mean, I call it a diary, but it's a very loose notebooking, really. I probably like that as an intermediary, and then every so often I pluck something out of it 
and use it for something. But I'm not going straight from life to to delivery. You know, there's this kind of like this intermediary area where I'm capturing everything. That's, I, I think that sounds really, really nice. And it reminds me when I spoke to the author, Andrew Cowan, that he just, he kept a weather diary where he'd just write one sentence about the weather every day. And and then he sort of points to like the points in his novels where a particularly good piece of weather that happened on one day that he wrote down about, he'll just sort of yoink it out of those diaries and drop it into a story, the you know, wind blowing a wheelie bin down the road and it's like pinballing off cars and setting the alarms off. And it's kind of like, in the novel, it seems like a very sort of lyrical piece of invention. But of course, all he's been doing is one sentence a day about the weather, noting it down, and then he can magpie some of these bits later, selectively, of course. Sometimes the weather's not novel-worthy, but um, and it just seems like a very sort of wholesome, and, and like you, 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 what you're doing also seems like very doable to a lot of us. It's not like, why don't you sit down and write a novel tomorrow? It's like, why don't you note down some of the stuff that you've been going through and it won't be for anyone? I think that sounds much more executable to a lot of us than the sort of big major project yes it's exactly that and and his process that's exactly the way i do it. and the other thing i find remarkable about it because when i'm writing it it all just feels the same it's just writing um there's a hillary mantel quote i like actually and she says um bad art and good art feel remarkably the same whilst in progress and it's basically it, and, and the, the definitely what i'm doing with this writing it's the same it just feels the same i don't have a sense of like that was a good day ever i don't even try to think like that but when i just have a glance back a, a paragraph will just jump out of it and i think that's wonder i can just cut and paste that straight into whatever or look that's the whole thing but it didn't at the time it's just and it'll just be there surrounded by you know like you know, moaning about this, that and the other or fairly pedestrian. I'm trying to write more about nature because um, my friend Claire, who's very wise, told me it would make me feel better and it does. But again, I'm very, I'm not trying to write about nature in a capital W writing way, fairly pedestrian observations about, you know, I looked at the grass this morning and thought it was green and did six breaths and Claire was right. I did feel a bit better. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. And then every, every so often there'll be something where I just think like, oh, but I won't have seen it at the time, which is back to that thing about how in the culture we sort of have this idea that, I don't know, that writing is, I think, probably almost a bit more conscious than it is. You know, if you are a talented person, you get anointed, you're the person who's allowed to make sense to the world for the others. You know, you're the poet laureate, you're the bard, whatever it is. Whereas actually, I think it's something more that we can all access and that it is the doing of it. The doing of it is the thing that leads to it, hopefully at some point being, you know, kind of good or useful for other people, maybe. That's a better way to think about it. I, I was talking about it recently to a friend and she said I was a bit down on myself, but I said, like, the more I do it, the more I think that the the book, like the finished book, not so much with this writing book because it's for other people, but like the novel, it's almost like the waste product. The process is so important for me that what kind of like ends up, you know, it's the cement mixer of the of my preoccupations that's the important bit, and then what plops out at the end, maybe that is then going to be good for other people. Um, but it's the cement mixer bit that is the important bit, not the end. 
And my friend thought that sounded a bit depressing. But then I did Woman's Hour the other day with Anne Patchett and she talked about, she didn't say waste projects, but obviously she's much wiser than I am. But she did say about the book being the byproduct of the process. Um, so, and I think that's another, it's quite helpful way to think because I think what what's what is helpful for writing is continually taking yourself away from this notion of am I any good am I allowed to do this will people laugh at me you know all of that's really um difficult and sticky and makes it hard to do work yeah I I maybe maybe the um maybe maybe the uh maybe the novel is the 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 the, the ambergris and the uh, and the nice, uh, yeah. and the process and the process is the digestive system of a sperm whale. I'm not sure that's any better. That's a more, that's a more abstruse metaphor. Yeah. Kathy, um, <laughs> uh, 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 thank you so much for chatting today. I've had so much. Um, I saying fun sounds like I'm I, I'm sort of diminishing it but I've just been really um engaging and thrilling to chat to you and thank you so much for um making time to speak to me today and and congratulations on um the release of uh write it all down thank you very much I've had fun and I think fun is really important and I think it's important to life and I think it's also really important to any kind of creative process and engagement so thank you very much and i've really enjoyed talking to you and i've thought about lots of things in a new way so you clearly have that effect on people so Terrific. how lovely that you and again how lovely that you bring that to the world with this podcast because oh thank you that's what i know this is you know this is all the stuff we just keep need to keep noticing you know whether it's the green grass or the climbing roses or the interesting conversations with people who are open to sharing their sylvia plath and pokemon habits with the world um. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll keep doing that yeah and to everyone listening thanks for listening and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing